number 674. We've been asked to mark that. We're not only happy to do that, but aren't we again continuing to be thankful for the opportunity to assemble together? What better way to begin a week than to involve ourselves in yet another period of worship, a consideration in which we can offer to God the heartfelt thanks, the heartfelt adoration that we in fact feel. It's good to see each one here this evening, and may I ask that we give thought to, are we in the last days? You may have already noted that is the title I selected for the lesson this evening. And so for the next few moments, why don't you and I give some reflective thought using the commentary of the Word of God to give some thought to answer that question. Are we living in the last days? This next slide will be a rather gentle introduction to that set of ideas by not only re-asking that question, but to basically make the following observation. I suppose there are relatively few questions that relate to religion in one way or another that are more oft asked, or at least in some indirect way, impressing upon the features of the topic of, of the lesson tonight. Bookstore shelves, quite frankly, groan beneath the weight of various tomes and books and articles that have been written that touch this subject, and many of which are rather sensational, many of which are, quite frankly, very much opposed to the teaching of the Word of God, but they are captivating. Movies have been fashioned about them. Various books have been written, and quite frankly, a whole host of various Internet sites are not only centered around it, but they really paint a rather dramatic set of pictures, and many people enjoy it. They lovingly and longingly look into it, and they rather thrill at discussing it. I wonder tonight if we could just not only ask the question, but use the Word of God by virtue of some things that I'm going to invite you to consider. Would you be apprised of the fact eight times in the entirety of the Bible, eight times the phrase last days is found? May I propose that tonight we look at every one of them and ask if it refers to some sensational set of events that are yet at some point in the future, if not, what do they refer to? And you and I should be better equipped to reflect upon the nature of what that does teach. And so tonight, let's look at each one of them first. And once we've done that, we will use the remainder of our time to make just a very small handful of observations about those texts that we would have considered. And so the first one begins like this. In Genesis 49, <clears throat> verse number 1, we encounter in the days of the long ago a feature in which Jacob, that third of the patriarchs in many ways, there was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and yet on his deathbed, Jacob gathered his sons around him, and he shared a number of things with them. Now might we be equipped to appreciate that God, of course, gave to Jacob the opportunity at that moment to know something about that which would befall those boys in future days from that time that he made those statements. But if you reflect upon them, may I point out, as I've done on the slide, the vast majority of what was shared to those boys was not complimentary. In other words, Jacob told them certain things that were going to be characteristic of their descendants, and in many instances it really wasn't complimentary. In some ways, you and I would probably look on it as a bit insulting. It was not a favorable set of circumstances. And yet, as that chapter began, 
it had reference to what would befall them in the last days. May I point out that many of the things that Jacob shared with them would transpire within a few hundred years from the time it was written. In other words, it was going to happen long before your day and mine today. In fact, there was re with regard to one of the sons, namely Judah, it was said to him that out of his loins that there would be, of course, the Shiloh would come, the one that would be the bringer of peace. That was a reference to the Christ. From that time, that was going to occur in roughly 2,000 years. May I say the furthest excursion that you and I find in any of the references of Jacob's sons in that connection it was going to be fulfilled in less than 2,000 years. By the very token, that means it's not yet waiting in the future. The vast majority of those things have come and gone and have been fulfilled long ago. Even the one concerning Jesus, our Master, has already come to this planet. He lived and walked among men, and He's now ascended back to the Father. Every one of them has been fulfilled long ago now. May I point out at the very least, that text has nothing to say about the last days referring to some yet future event. Look at the second one in Isaiah 2, verse number 2. And may I point out that we're going to look at two of them at once in regard to this one, since they are so closely related and they are so closely coupled. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse number 2, the God of heaven delivered to the prophet Isaiah, who in fact made this statement. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house would be established at the top of the mountains. And all nations shall flow unto it, and the law would go forth from Jerusalem. That's quoted almost verbatim in Micah 4, verses 1 and following, and that's why I label these two together. It is true that reference to the last days does occur, but it is amazing to that which it refers. It's referring to the coming of Jesus and the nature of the church which he would establish. Again, may I point out the mountain of the Lord's house. And yet later in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul by inspiration could write, that if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the church of God, which is the house of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. In an interesting thus, a reference to the Lord's house refers, of course, to the church. That text in Isaiah then pointed to the time when the church would be established. It had nothing to say or to do about yet some far distant future event. So far in these two instances, the last days haven't had anything to do with what we often encounter and hear people talk about it referring to today. <coughs> Excuse me. What about the third one? In Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In fact, this one's going to look very familiar. This one was read in our hearing just a moment ago. Would you listen to it again? But it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now in this instance, isn't it clear enough that Peter directly points out in the preceding verse, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And then he quotes directly from Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. And yet here he applies it and makes reference to the last days. Isn't it clear that Peter's quotation of it, borrowing from the days of Joel, directly applied to that momentous event on the day of Pentecost when the church began? So in other words, here is yet a fourth consideration in which the phrase, the last days, had nothing to do with yet some far distant future event, but rather it referred, in this instance, to the establishment of the church. So far through four verses, we have found no relation, no connection, in fact, not even an insinuation about some yet future event in which Jesus is supposed to return yet again, and at this instant some vast army or war will take place. How about the next page? Let's look at the next one. Number five. In 2 Timothy 3, verse number 1, Paul had some rather remarkable remarks to make relative to the events that you and I are discussing tonight. In 2 Timothy 3, 1, let me just read a few of the verses so that we can place it in its proper context. I might point out that verse 1, if we take it by itself, it simply reads like this. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. If we stop at that point, perilous times will come. That seems to be exactly what you and I are hearing and reading in light of many of these things written by men. But what are the perilous times to which Paul referred? Does he elaborate? He does. May I continue reading? So he has just pointed us in our attention to the existence of perilous times in the last days. When is this? For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. I would invite each of us, in light of a listing such as that one, could we now appreciate more clearly to what era in time might Paul be referring? So he's listed all these categories, various things which are not good. Paul, when are all these things going to happen? Could I invite you to look forward a little bit further in the verse? In that set of verses, verse 10, But thou hast known, Paul wrote, my doctrine and manner of life. It would appear that Paul contrasts that which was then under description, that list we just seen, with, of course, what had been modeled and exemplified by himself and his companions. Look even further. Verse number 14, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. May I point out, essences of those problems were already beginning to some degree in that day. Paul had nothing in mind that was directly attaching these only to some far distant future moment. There were already some perilous times beginning then. Look at the next one, if you would. Hebrews 1, verse number 2. As we open the book of Hebrews... 
We read God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by His Son. The Hebrew writer makes mention of the last days. But what days were they? They clearly weren't again far distant future moments and times and eras. This was times that Jesus is doing the speaking. May I suggest you and I are already in these times. You and I saw it really in those events of Acts 2.17. When Peter quoted the book of Joel and said, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he says, In the last days. May I point out the last days have been under uh, in progression and have been in existence on earth since the day of Pentecost. The last days in many ways began in great movement at about that time and in many ways culminated on the Pentecost. Isn't it amazing to consider these people today who are thus asserting that we're in the last days, they're 2,000 years too late. The last days have been going on ever since the great events of which we read in Acts chapter 2. Isn't that amazing? Look at the next one. After that text in Hebrews chapter 1, the last two, this closes the list. James 5, verse number 3. In the little epistle of James, we encounter the following statement. It says, Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Now, who was it that James was referencing? You and I can easily recall, look back to the opening verse of the chapter. Go to now, ye rich men. You see, there was an issue that was troubling the area to which James wrote. Those who had a fair amount of wealth of this land and of the earth were somewhat advantaged to the point where others who were lacking often looked upon them with a degree of jealousy and maybe even some envy. And yet in this text, the writer James pointed out that wealth that had been gotten by the way that they typically had gotten it was such as they had heaped up treasure for then. It wasn't going to help them in eternity. It wasn't going to help them in some distant time. The last days to which James referred were those days in which those folks were then living. We yet have found not a single verse that has painted this panoramic picture of the last days as you and I often hear it in the kind of sensational diagrams and drama that usually is presented. We have only one more. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Peter writing said, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. Now Peter again references the last days. When was this? Did you notice he said, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. And in the next verses, he helps us understand. He again has nothing to say about a far distant future time near the end of all things in which there's supposed to be this momentous set of ideas. Some would talk about a battle of Armageddon. 
Others would talk about the rise of a singular Antichrist. Others would talk about other events that supposedly are going to be entrenched in Jesus' literal reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. And these verses have nothing to say about this. You might be impressed to notice that in the description that Peter puts before us, he says there's going to be scoffers. I wonder what the scoffers will do. Look at the next verse. These scoffers will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. These are going to be people that will question the second coming. That is to say, they go about their daily walk of life apparently unconvinced that there's going to come an end where Jesus will return. But may I say, it has none of the sensational character that so often is presented and that is so often discussed in relation to that supposed set of ideas. Having looked at all the verses, why don't we then do the following? Could I just offer a very small handful of ideas that might bring together some of these things you and I have just seen? I would think it very clear to write the phrase, last days, does at least suggest there is coming an end. This earth is not going to continue on and on indefinitely. There's coming a set of last days. I would even remind each of us that in John chapter 6, Jesus referred to the last day. It's not even plural. There's coming a, t- a day when that will be the last one. That's a remarkable truth. It's something that we each should live each day understanding that as amazing in many ways as this earth can be. The systems which describe it, the ongoing features and environment by which we observe it, all of that was God's masterful creation, and He's going to bring it to an end at some point. On that slide, I invited you to note it like this. Many of the details that you and I observe and appreciate, they have been a critical part of earth's ongoing framework since the very beginning. It's not as if they have been recently developed or recently invented or in some cases even recently understood. The creation record of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 remind us of earth's position, the sweetness and the amazing character of that position. I would remind us each of texts such as Genesis 8, verse 22. God said this a long time ago to Noah right after the flood. God declared this truth. Seed time and harvest and cold and heat shall not be done away. They shall remain. Haven't there been occasions when our world, and especially our country, I suppose, has found itself in moments of fear, in moments of overwhelming anxiety due to things which in the international community are or have taken place. Some of us have read much about that event in 1961 when Fidel Castro, of course, set up an arrangement in Cuba, which is only 90 miles off the coast of our country. And, of course, the president took action at once to take care of this supposed matter of great fearful consideration. Since that time, there's been nuclear armament. 
Since that time, there have been a number of great developments in terms of bomb development. You and I know, though, that God said there is going to be no nuclear war that's going to end this planet. God said it's going to continue and it's going to remain. Now, men may, of course, have their ideas and assertions that may have been made. But you and I recognize in the comfort of a text like that one that we can see in it the promise and the absolute guarantee of the God of heaven. There will be no signs of the coming end. I realize quite again that that is a critical part of many of those books that have been written. I'm sure you've heard about the Left Behind series. Well over 63 million copies of that series have been sold. Think about that. That doesn't count, of course, the host of readings that can be done online, the various other movies in relation to it that have been witnessed and watched. It seems as if when Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins would write every new element of that series, it would race to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. People are captivated by this sort of thing. In that book, they talk about the signs of the end. Signs? What signs? They misuse texts such as Matthew 24, verses 6 and following, where they speak about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and various things that are supposedly the signs of the end. It is no such thing. Even in context, that has nothing to do with the end of time. As we've often observed and noted, those aspects of that chapter clearly referred to the destruction of Jerusalem. And those events thus took place in the events leading up to A.D. 70. They have nothing to say about today or, yea, some distant future event or time. Isn't it a fascinating thing to notice the end is coming, but there will be no signs. Doesn't that remind us how critical it is thus to always be watchful? to ever be ready so that we're not caught off guard. But number two, could we lay a bit of emphasis on the last days in the form that I've asked you to consider it here? In the New Testament, this phrase, the last days, it refers to the last epoch of time that is God's dispensing of His truth. It doesn't refer to some protracted period right before when the Savior is supposed to come back. All of time could be divided, it would seem, into three nice arrangements. There's a patriarchal age, a mosaic age, and a Christian age. And the Christian age began that dispensing of God's truth it began thus on those events surrounding the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts 2. And for that reason, Peter said, This is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he referred to the last days. Peter lived in the last days. So too did James and John and the host of other New Testament writers. And you and I, of course, all our lives have been in the last days. They've been ongoing now for almost two millennia. No wonder in that light. Can't you and I appreciate then to borrow some of those observations that Paul highlighted in 2 Timothy 3? Do we today see the continuing artifacts of some who are motivated by things in that list? Do we see those that love pleasure more than they love God? 
Do we see those who are disobedient to parents? Do we witness those who are heady and high-minded? Do we see those, you see, who are described otherwise by the features of that text? I would easily say, and you would too, that the events characteristic of those descriptions have been ongoing for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it seems rather sure that they're going to continue. Look at the third one. The correspondence to Christ is how I label this one. In that Hebrew text, wasn't it amazing we read this? God at one time spoke to the prophets, or spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but today He speaks by His Son. Doesn't that highlight in such strong language that God speaks to us, dispenses to us that which is His will through the nature of what revolves around Christ? That thought alone is significant. And doesn't that remind us that that shall continue to be the case throughout the fullness of these last days? God did speak unto the fathers by the prophets, but now in these last days, He speaks to us by His Son. The nature of God's speaking to us by way of the Son is in many ways something that points us back to John 12, verse 49. Jesus in that very passage said that He was the great prophet of God speaking the nature of one greater than Moses. The last thought on that slide is this one. We understand the church, of course, is the body of Christ. It is that over which Christ reigns His head. And the church is that fullness of His body. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. It is for that reason we exalt and highlight the nature of the church because we seek to follow the Christ. We're the ones that give earnest heed to what He has said. The world doesn't follow what He has said. They haven't professed themselves to be allegiant followers of Him, but we have. Because, you see, we're the ones that have taken to heart that which the Christ, of course, Himself said. Having said all of that, doesn't that bring us then to this observation? The fourth and final one. Truth. This reference to the last days perhaps takes us back to that scene of events in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter forewarned those of his day that there would be scoffers. Folks that would ask, where's the promise of His coming? Things seemingly continue from day to day, from year to year, without any change, without any alteration. And yet, Peter asserted, don't you remember? There were people like that when the flood waters of Noah's day came. Things had been going on for a long time, and they no doubt thought nothing unusual. They even perhaps scoffed at Noah building an ark. Why do you need an ark? It would appear, as far as we can tell, they'd never even seen it rain. And yet, there was a time when the waters began to rise. The rains came, and the fountains of the great deep were, bro were broken up, and the waters began to rise. And so, what they predicated on, a continuation of what had been, was false. And you and I realize, too, that the Bible does speak about the end, of course, of the earth. In 2 Peter 3, verse number 10, the inspired writer said, But the day of the Lord will come 
as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And then in the aftermath of that, this question is asked, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And isn't that the great point? This earth is not going to last. All of the features of the wealth and consistency connected to it, it won't last eternally. You and I need to, in fact, invest in things that do, like godliness, holiness, directness in laying up treasures in heaven, to borrow the words of Matthew 6, verses 19 and following. One of the last points on that slide then would be another highlight to the truth as Jesus described it in Matthew 24. When those apostles came to Jesus, and we each remember the scene that led them to this question, they were exiting Jerusalem. And you might remember that they called the Lord's attention to that great temple that Herod had basically not only been involved in rebuilding, but he had solidified it. Jesus quickly stunned them by saying, I'm telling you, the day's coming when not one stone's going to be left on another. And those stones were massive. They weighed tons apiece. And don't you know those apostles had to wonder, who's going to move them? How is this going to happen? Jesus continued walking. He didn't even stop and fully elaborate at that moment. But they finally arrived at the Mount of Olives. And then four of the apostles came to him in private and said, Jesus, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming into the end of the world? They were so interested to know, I want to know, when will these things happen? That question is identically found in Matthew 24, 3. And beginning at that point, the Lord answered. Wouldn't you like to have been there to see their interest get piqued? As the Lord, through the next 33 verses, told them about the destruction of Jerusalem, the kind of events that were going to transpire and the great death that was going to accompany it. And He gave them signs to look for. When you see this happening, get out of town. It was going to be 40 years before that happened. But they listened with intensity and they listened with care. And Josephus and other writers tell us they listened to what he said. And they exited the city when they saw the signs. But then he transitioned in verse 35, and he began to discuss the second question, which related not to Jerusalem's destruction, but to his own coming in the end of the world. And that time he said, there are no signs. There won't be any. In fact, speaking of, of that day, he said, not even the angels know, not even the Son knows, but the Father only. You see, the end of time is not this sensational thing that our books, so often written by men, would like to describe. And those movies that have garnered, multiplied millions of followers, they have no biblical truth in them when it comes to that. But this book does. The last days... The Bible does talk about it, and we've been in them now for 2,000 years approximately. We don't yet wait for some fanciful, skeptical, sensational set of events long distance in the future. 
we simply recognize there's going to come a moment when the Lord will return in the clouds and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 And you and I appreciate that when all that happens, the dead in Christ will rise to meet Him and forever shall they be with the Lord. And that's it. The judgment will follow and eternity will have been well underway. Nothing like this other set of events is prescribed to us. Aren't we thankful to be Christians? To have our faith planted in the revelation of the Word of God. The last thing we'll notice tonight is merely a conclusion. The last days. Are we living in the last days? Absolutely. It's not something we yet look forward to. They've been ongoing for a long, long time. The truth of the Bible is so reassuring and it's so comforting, really. Some of those movies that have been produced that relate to this, it's caused people to be beside themselves with nightmares. It's caused people to be greatly agitated by various and sundry events and happenings and so-called propositions when really the Word of God has given us the answers and puts before us what God has allowed us to know relative to that set of events. And it's nothing like what men have so often in their fanciful imaginations put before us. Tonight, as you and I then offer this invitation of the Lord, we do so with this idea. With regard to this subject and any other, we simply want to hear what God has to say. What saith the Scripture, Romans 4 verse 3? Tonight, if there might be someone in this assembly who's reached an age of knowing wrong from right and would wish to become a Christian, we would love to assist and to help and to celebrate with you. Would you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized? But if you have known that way of life and you have chosen perhaps gradually to move away from Him, you realize you could make a step back in the right direction tonight and Jesus will be there to grasp your hand, to enforce, to lead, and to help. And we would like to also offer our statement of encouragement as well. If we could help in that way, won't you just let us know the way we can? If that involves prayer, if that involves additional study of the Word of God, any of those things, just let us know. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation. Brother Larry has chosen a song of encouragement. If you would wish to come, won't you do it now? While together we stand and while we sing.